The following is a sermon that was preached at Faith Lutheran Church in Sharpsburg, Georgia. For more information about our church or to hear past sermons from Faith Lutheran, visit georgiafaith.com. Thank you for listening. I was having a very nostalgic, emotional moment here looking out at the congregation that I haven't seen in 15 years from this vantage point. Um, Seeing many of you that I sweated and bled with on the softball field, Um, many of you that I sweated with doing door-to-door canvassing, and sweated with on the soccer field for Faith Soccer Camp. It is truly a privilege to be here. Since that time as the the little vicar running around in Sharpsburg, my family made our way back to the seminary and then to Port Charlotte, Florida, where I served as a mission restart pastor there for five years from there, up to Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, where I served as a youth and school and outreach pastor in Fond du Lac for about six years. For the last three years, I have been out in Nampa, Idaho, of all places, serving as a missionary to Mormons. Uh, serving with a Wells Parasynodical called Truth in Love Ministry. We really have a, a twofold purpose of the ministry. The first is proclaiming Christ directly into the Mormon community to those that are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. And the second part of our ministry is the Christian education side, where I travel the country equipping Christians like you to witness to their Mormon friends and family. Some of you might be asking the question that is on many Christians' minds, why? Aren't Mormons Christian? Their their name is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They believe in Jesus, don't they? And I think many Christians believe that way because we don't take the time to dig deep enough into Mormon doctrine. Thankful many of you were able to spend time with me in Bible class today learning a little bit about Mormon doctrine and witnessing to them. But right now, as part of my role with the ministry, we're taking a little shift in our approach to reaching the Mormon world. Every year right now, there are hundreds of thousands, if not close to a million Mormons, leaving the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, not for a Christian church, but for atheism or agnosticism. And we see them as really low-hanging evangelistic opportunities. And so we're creating a brand new arm of our ministry called Jesus is Enough, where we are going to use ex-Mormon Christian stories to reach those that kind of have one foot in and one foot out of Mormonism, to kind of give them that final pull into the Christian world. As part of that process, I have been traveling the country for the last six months, conducting lengthy three or four day long interviews in people's homes about their stories out of Mormonism. Uh, The main reason I came to Georgia this week, in addition to wanting to see all of you, was to conduct the final of eight interviews for that docu-series with a woman named Carrie. Uh, Carrie grew up, as she lives now over in Augusta. Um, her husband is a JAG lawyer there at the fort, um, judge advocate general attorney. And for many years, she was Mormon. Uh, for 39 years, she was a very devout member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And the Jesus that she believed in, in in many ways, sounds much like the Jesus that you and I believe in. Words like Savior are words that she's familiar with. She's familiar with words like the atonement and heaven and sacrifice. But as you learned in Bible class, those words mean very different things for Mormons. And so even though she thought for 39 years that she was on this path, that would eventually lead to her and her family being forever together in what's called the celestial kingdom. 
One day in the little town of Garmisch, Germany, while her husband was stationed overseas, she had an eye-opening experience. For 39 years, she had had this vision or this view of who Jesus was, this Mormon Jesus. He's my older brother who's this great example for how to follow. And his death on the cross and his resurrection, it makes it so that we can eventually be raised from the dead. But after that, all of the work is up to me. And so that's how she had been raised, and that's how she was raising her four children at the time. Well, she and her family were on the way back from a trip to Greece, coming back to Germany where they were stationed. And they passed through a, a little town of Garmisch, Germany, and it was the Saturday before Easter Sunday. And her husband said, you know what, there isn't a, a Mormon church around here. Why don't we find a, a sunrise service? He had heard about sunrise services in Christian churches, and they found one that was on this base um, called Edelweiss. And so Carrie and her family woke up early on Easter morning, bundled up in blankets because they hadn't brought warm clothing with them for their trip to Greece, and they sat outside as the sun was rising with the beautiful Alps behind them as the backdrop. And Carrie heard a message that she had never heard before. A message about blood, a message about death, a message about sacrifice, and a message about substitution. The pastor in that service must have done a good, pretty good job of including both Good Friday and Easter themes. The final song that they sang that day was kind of an, or a medley of songs that included the song, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. And the refrain stuck in Carrie's mind. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That stood in direct contrast to the message that she had been taught her entire life, that Jesus does part of the work, but you've got to do the rest. And now she heard, what can make me whole, complete? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And she couldn't shake that. And she wondered, how is the Jesus that these Christians worship? And the, 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 the Jesus that these Christians were praising in a way that she had never experienced before how was he so different from her Jesus? And she started to realize that it was because of her preconceptions about who Jesus was. When she told me that, this idea of preconceived ideas about who Jesus is and our hopes and our desires for him, it got me thinking about all of the ways in which we even, as Christians, sometimes have a false view of who Jesus is. So I started putting together a list of different versions of Jesus that people have. And it's a working list. I asked the first service to help me. They actually added two or three to the list. So I'll ask you to do that. I'm preaching on this text again next week back home in Idaho. It'll be a slightly different message because two of my Mormon neighbors are going to be sitting in the pews. So I'm going to talk about it in a little different way, contextualize it differently. But here's, here's the Jesuses that I've come up with this week that people believe in sometimes. The first is picture book, coloring book Jesus. So it's that, that kind, friendly Jesus that, you know, when you're in preschool, you color in in the book. Then there's a, a much more robust Shakespearean King James Jesus that speaks in these and thous. Maybe if you grew up with the King James, that was the Jesus. There's political Jesus, who is red state Jesus and blue state Jesus. There's some, the athlete's favorite Jesus, bicep Jesus. He looks all roided out. You've seen the pictures of Jesus with biceps. There's Jesus with two E's. Thank you, Kanye West, for this version of Jesus. 
Uh, there is CEO authoritarian Jesus. There's hippie Jesus who's all about peace and love. There's best friend buddy Jesus who's just there to encourage you on the way. But there's life coach Jesus who's like Richard Simmons standing there. Come on, guys, just follow me and I'll be an example for you. There's drill sergeant Jesus who stands above you and says, come on. I did the work of becoming perfect. You can too. There's the Mormon, big brother, elder Jesus, who's there to be an example, to, to guide the way to heaven. There's rockin' Jesus of Jesus Christ Superstar. There's bumper stick Jesus, who's part of that whole cosmic Christianity thing or the coexist. Jesus is there, but so are all of the other deities of the world. There's I'm going to Disneyland Jesus. Yay, he's given me my wildest dreams. Genie Jesus, he's sometimes called. You just ask for your wishes in the right way. Somebody after church said, well, there's Butler Jesus. He knows exactly what you need, and he's going to give it to you on a silver platter whenever you need it, as long as you're faithful to him and pay him well. And finally, one said there's ATM Jesus, the name it and proclaim it Jesus, where as long as you're making the right sort of spiritual deposits, you can also make the right sort of spiritual withdrawals. Which version of Jesus do you believe in? You see, even though you call yourself a Christian, at times we have false preconceived ideas of who Jesus is, too. Because sometimes we disciples can be looking right at Jesus and completely miss him. That was the problem for two first-century disciples. We know the name of one of them. His name was Cleopas. We don't know the name of the other. Some commentators think that he's Luke, the writer of this gospel lesson himself. But we don't know. But the context is this. It's Easter afternoon. The women have already gone to the tomb and come back and said that he's not there. He's alive. He's risen, just as he said. But these two disciples are walking the road to Emmaus seven miles away with their heads downcast and downtrodden. They're, they're talking about the things that have transpired over the last few days when all of a sudden a stranger walks up beside them and starts talking to them. He asks them what they're talking about and they say, well, how do you, have you not heard about Jesus of Nazareth? The whole city, even in a time before social media and 24-7 television, was talking about Jesus. They had crucified this man who had claimed to be the Messiah. They, they said he was, he was majestic in word and in deed. He was, he was a prophet. And they said these words that are filled with so much drama. But we had hoped, we had hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. What kind of version of Jesus did they believe in? Their preconceptions of Jesus was that he was this great prophet, but he was also a political figure. He, he was the very common Jesus of the day that they were looking for. Someone who would come and drive out the hated Romans. Someone who would usher in a new period of peace and prosperity that the Israel, people of Israel hadn't known since the time of the Davidic kingdom, a thousand years before. That's who they were looking for. They weren't looking for the Jesus of Isaiah 53, a savior who would come and suffer and bleed and be crucified and die. And so they, they say to this man, like, he, he came and he suffered. And they're, they're wrestling with this. And they said, but some of our women went and they couldn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of our companions went to the tomb. And Jesus looks at them and it says, 
how slow and foolish of heart you are to believe the things that the prophets have spoken. How foolish and slow of heart were they, but how foolish and slow of heart are we? Because we too have preconceived ideas of who Jesus should be. And just like these Emmaus disciples, we get disappointed and downtrodden when Jesus doesn't live up to our expectations. But Jesus doesn't leave us there. There are people outside of the church that they really look at this problem that we have and they call it confirmation bias. It's this problem that we have with preconceptions. It's this idea that we only seek out information that confirms our beliefs while ignoring and dismissing evidence that contradicts it. This confirmation bias concept was talked about a lot during the pandemic on both sides of the aisle. People were unwilling to hear evidence that others were presenting. And even if evidence was presented, they would say, nope, I'm only going to listen to evidence that helps confirm my bias or confirms my side of the argument. That happens in the church too. And it was happening with these disciples so that they were not able to see the truth. Francis Bacon, a writer many years ago, put it this way. He said, once a man's understanding has settled on something, either because it's an accepted belief or because it pleases him, it draws everything else to support and agree with that. What version of Jesus have you built that you have used confirmation bias to continue to support? That Jesus needs to open your eyes today to see that that is a false God. That's what my friend Carrie realized on that Easter Sunday morning in Garmisch, Germany. That the preconceived God that she was worshiping was not the God of the Bible. And the way that that happened is the word of God worked on her heart. And that's what Jesus does next. First for those disciples on the road, but also for us. To draw us from that place of our false confirmation bias versions of Jesus to the true authentic Jesus. Did you hear what he did? He doesn't argue and debate with them. He goes to the word, the word about himself. Can you imagine being there on that afternoon, walking with Jesus, who's teaching a Bible class about Jesus? How cool that would be. Um, I think all of us would sign up for that Bible information class. But as they're walking along the road, here's what Jesus does. Beginning with the first five books of Moses, maybe even with the first gospel message in Genesis 3.15 about the the heel crusher and the, the one that would crush the serpent, he connects some of the dots for them. He starts to show them that their preconceived ideas of what the Messiah was supposed to be like isn't what the Bible had been telling them all these years, and they had been very selective in looking for the Messiah in the Old Testament. And so he starts to connect the dots for them. As they're walking along, they suddenly get to the place where they're going. And Jesus acts as if he's going to go a a little bit further. And the the men say, oh, it's, it's evening, the day is almost over, come in and stay with us. They've just enjoyed their time with Jesus, but they still don't recognize him. But here's what happens. So he went in to stay with them. And when he sat at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. Then, then in the breaking of that bread, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. 
and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were our hearts not burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? What they realized was this man who broke the bread in their presence was the same one who had just had his body torn and his blood poured out for their sins. And they started to connect the dots. Before they had been convinced that Jesus captured his suffering, his crucifixion, and his death was not part of the plan. They knew what had happened, but they didn't understand why it had happened. That's the problem with Mormonism and false versions of Christianity. Is they know the what's. They know the specific details about what Jesus did, but they corrupt the why. Why did Jesus need to suffer? Why did he need to die? Why did he need to rise from the dead? It wasn't just so that we could have a physical resurrection from the dead. It was so we could have our eyes open and receive spiritual sight so that one day, when we are raised from the dead physically, we could live with God in heaven forevermore. That's what these guys finally got. That the very thing that they had seen as the worst thing that could happen to Jesus, his death on the cross, was exactly according to plan. But they couldn't see that until that bread was broken in front of them. Maybe they were reminded of how Jesus broke the bread at that final supper. The pieces started to fall into place for them. A few years ago, I learned something about puzzle pieces and the necessity of having the right puzzle pieces. Uh, my son Jonas, who was born here at the time, was five or six years old, and he was way advanced in puzzle skills. So my mother um, decided to give us a bunch of 500-piece puzzles that I had had when I was a teenager. Um, so she put them in a box and sent them to us. And whether it was before they got to us or in shipping, when they arrived, the box lids were off and all of the puzzle pieces were mixed together. But Jonas, he was, he was still convinced he could do this. And so he starts trying to put the pieces of multiple puzzles together. And he found a few that fit together perfectly. And he found a few that were kind of the right shape. And he'd try to force them in. And he'd say, Dad, I know this is the piece, but it's a little bit too big. Can I cut it with some scissors to make it fit? No, that's not the way that puzzles work. So in his preconceived idea of what this picture was, he thought, I could make it fit no matter what. I watched him struggle for a little bit until I went over and... We sorted the puzzle pieces, and I said, well, which puzzle do you want to make? And he pointed to one of the boxes, and I said, well, let's find the pieces for that puzzle. And within a few hours, the picture started to take shape much more clearly. You see, everything is much more clearly when you're looking at the right picture. The puzzles start to fall into place. This happened for my friend Carrie. It began on that Easter Sunday morning. The next week, she went to, back to the LDS church, and she was at the women's Bible class. And the, 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 context, or the content that was being taught that day, the woman that was leading it, she drew two columns on the board. And she said, these are all of the things that Jesus gives us as a free gift, and these are all of the things we need to earn. And right there she said, what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And from that day on, she went to God's word and the puzzle pieces started to fall into place. And she realized that the Jesus, the picture of Jesus that she had painted in her mind, that the Mormon church had painted, was not the Jesus of the Bible. Now, it took her a couple of years to have the courage to tell her husband. And her husband, at first, he considered divorce. 
But eventually he said, I, I want to keep my family. So he started attending a Christian congregation with her. And after going for a few months, they were driving in the car one day, and all of a sudden he just said, I believe. I believe in the Jesus of the Bible. He said, I, I don't know what happened exactly. A few years later, he was reading a book called Surprised by Joy by um, famed theologian C.S. Lewis, and there was a line about C.S. Lewis' conversion to Christianity that resonated with this man, Anthony. He said that C.S. Lewis said, as I was traveling to the zoo one day, all of a sudden, when I started, I didn't believe in Jesus, but when I ended, I did. And it was because of a message he had heard a few weeks before. But he said, it was more like when a man, after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is awakened. And Carrie's husband, Anthony, said, that's what it was like for me. It was like I was waking up from being asleep my entire life without realizing it. And now I've got the whole world before me. And so my friends, Carrie and Anthony, have said, this is what Jesus does. Much like he came and walked along the path to Emmaus with those two disciples, he comes into our lives, too, with his word to take the preconceptions that we have and pull those blinders off so that we can see not just the what of the resurrection, but the why. That we don't need a butler Jesus or a genie Jesus to grant us all of our physical wishes. We don't need a name it and proclaim it ATM Jesus. We need a dying Jesus. And more importantly, we need a living Jesus. And that's what Carrie saw on that Easter Sunday morning in Garmisch, Germany, and was excited to see last weekend at her Christian congregation over in Augusta, where she heard the same message that you did. That Krakatoa-type explosion that Pastor Schrader talked about last week, that bell of the gospel that has been ringing all over the world ever since, that bell is now ringing in her ears, and she said, go and tell those Christians to go and tell their Mormon friends about Jesus so they can hear the joy of that gospel bell too. The joy of that gospel that says Christ is risen, he is risen indeed for me and for you and for everyone. And that's the best news ever. My dear friends, it's been a privilege to spend this day with you. Go and share Jesus just like those disciples did with their hearts overwhelmed with joy, running back to Jerusalem to say, he's alive. Go to Sharpsburg and beyond saying, he's alive, he's alive, come and see. Amen.